We have now entered into the really tragic section of the book of Luke where Jesus is unfairly tried, condemned, tried, framed, and condemned. And there is a guilty man who will be released at the same time that Jesus is condemned. Now, from the time that Pilate takes the pavement, the pavement in Jerusalem was like the bench of a judge. When a judge is going to give sentence, they sit behind the bench to do it. They take the bench, they call the court to order, and they give their judgment. And so in Jerusalem, there was a pavement, the Bible tells us, in Hebrew was called Gabbatha. And Pilate took the pavement, washed his hands, and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and condemned Jesus to die. And like I said last week, that doesn't really work. Pilate might have thought that worked, but it didn't really work. Once he condemned him to die, he is now responsible, even though he tried to wash his hands from it. He was responsible. So Jesus is now going to go from the pavement, Gabbatha, to the hill they're going to crucify him on, Golgotha. From Gabbatha to Golgotha. And during this time, there are a few things that happen. In fact, I have seven things that happen from the time that he is condemned until the time that he actually gets to the place where they crucify him. That is what we are looking at today. But I'm, I'm not the first to see a significance in this. In fact, in the 1600s, the Catholic Church put together what is called the Stations of the Cross, the Way of the Cross. And if you have a Catholic background, then it was something that was significant to you. And for those of you, I was a Methodist, so I never knew about the, the Stations of the Cross. I, I have a friend who was a Catholic and she actually came to church with us last night and I talked to her about it. I asked her questions like, how significant was it? And what did it mean to you? And how did it really speak to you? And um, they, so they made 14 stations in the 1600s of the cross. And they are, you can find those stations on the actual Via Della Rosa. So the Via Della Rosa is the, is the path in Jerusalem, the traditional path by which Jesus went from where he was condemned to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site of where Jesus was crucified. What, is that the actual path? Probably not. It's different roads, okay? There's not the same roads that are there. But the Via Della Rosa reminds that. And there are 14 stations along that road that were made in the, in the 1600 by the Catholic Church. Now, only eight of the stations are biblical. And for that reason, non-Catholics have been hesitant to get involved in the Stations of the Cross. In 1991, uh, Pope John Paul II, in realizing this, that non-Catholics were not getting involved in the Stations of the Cross, but it's so significant to someone who is Catholic that he wanted to do something. So he came up with what he called the scriptural way of the cross, a whole set of prayers with it. And he went to things that were revealed in the Bible. This is his eight, this is his scriptural uh, way of the cross. Pilate condemns Jesus. Jesus accepts the cross. Simon helps him carry the cross. Jesus speaks to women. Jesus is stripped of his garments. Jesus is nailed to the cross. Jesus cares for his mother. And Jesus dies on the cross. Now, what this leaves out is Veronica, right? And for those of you who are Catholic, you will know that, that there's a tradition that Veronica met him on the road and she wiped his face with some kind of a napkin or something and that it transferred the face of Jesus over onto the napkin. And that is legend. As far as we can tell, there's no truth to it at all. 
Uh, there are also three of the stations he falls. The Bible never says he fell. Did he fall carrying the cross? Probably. He had been scourged. He had been beaten all night. He was carrying a heavy cross, or at least part of it. And so he probably did fall. And I think to some point, there may be a little bit too much criticism uh, in the stations of the cross from the Protestant point of view. And I want to do kind of our own little stations of the cross today. That's this Bible study. I want us to stop and contemplate at each one of these events that happen, which is what the Catholics do at the stations of the cross. They stop, they contemplate, there's written prayers that they pray, and it becomes something that is significant to them. Now, this time, and I'm only doing part of it, because the full stations of the cross go from the time he's condemned until the time that he dies. We're going to cover the crucifixion next week. We're just going to cover the time he's condemned until the time he gets to Golgotha. The seven things that happen along the way. That's what we're covering today. And this, this time from judgment until he's on the cross is foretold in Isaiah 53. Listen to what it says here. This is Isaiah 53, seven through eight. What I'm saying is the way of the cross is foretold in the Old Testament. Uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. This is Isaiah 53, seven. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, as a sheep before a shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare to his generations for he was cut off from the land of the living, which means he died. When you're cut off from the land of the living, you die. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So in Isaiah, we're told why he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions or for the iniquity of all of us. He did this for every single one of us. He faced the brutality of the cross and some of what we're going to look at today is very brutal, but he did it as, a, as an act of love towards you. He did it on a mission to save people, to give them eternity. It's like we would, if, if there was a child on a railroad track and a man saw the child and only had time to push the child out of the way and then was hit by the train, we might say, what a tragedy that he had to die, but what a brave thing for him to do. How heartwarming and touching it is when someone gives their life for someone else. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said, but I lay my life down. Jesus was pushing us out of the way of the train and taking the full force of the train by his own choice. He is not a victim here. When we get to these events, and we start to mull over them, it's kind of somber and it can be kind of sad. And I get that, same with communion, right? We take it with a seriousness and it can be kind of somber, I get it. But we need to remember that he is doing this for us. He could have, he could have ran away from the Garden of Gethsemane and not been arrested. He could have called a legion of angels to come and protect him, he said. He told Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know I could call a legion of angels right now? One angel in the Old Testament killed 184,000 people. So the Roman soldiers wouldn't have had a chance. Jesus went there on purpose. Now, I just want to go over these seven, what I'm calling the, the seven biblical stations of the cross. So we're stopping at each one. We're pondering today. That's what we're doing. I want to go over them. Then at the end of the study, I want to come back and read them all together. 
So we're going to kind of dive in and get that close view. Then we're going to back away and we're going to read them all together just to kind of get that last view before we're done. All right. So the first station would be that Pilate condemns Jesus to die. He takes the pavement, Gabbatha, and he condemns him to die. This is Matthew 27, 26. Then he released Barabbas to him, to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So the first thing that they would do to a prisoner who was now condemned to be crucified was to scourge them. Most likely, and the Roman, a lot of the Roman historians talk about this, the Babylonians didn't crucify, the Greeks didn't crucify, this was uniquely something the Romans did. The Romans crucified people. And crucifixion, depending on how they chose to crucify you, could take, you could take you days on the cross. You would die from exposure. You would die from thirst. You did not die from the wounds of being crucified. In fact, you did not have to be nailed to a cross to be crucified. They could have tied you to a cross or tied you to a tree, sometimes literally. They would find whatever they could find, a, a wooden wall, a tree, and they would crucify people on it. Now they learned that there was something excruciating about stretching out the hands. And Roman historians talk about stretching out the hands of victims who are crucified, which is one of the reasons that we believe that the cross is the shape of the cross that we believe today, that his hands were stretched out. What they discovered was when you stretch the hands out from someone, you crucify them, their weight falls forward. It causes their chest to be compressed that causes pressure on the heart, on the lungs. It makes it difficult to breathe. In order to breathe, you actually have to stand up on the nails or pull up on the nails to take a breath so that those on the cross were spoken of in this writhing condition. They were constantly writhing on the cross. They would scourge them in order to quicken, to, to speed up the, what was taking place on the cross. There would be blood loss. There would be injury. Sometimes uh, it's spoken of organs being laid bare. So that would speed up what would happen on the cross. Now, why did Jesus have to be scourged? Why did his death have to be so brutal? Why did he have to go through the cross? Why couldn't they just have beheaded him? He would have died for us. His blood would have been shed for us. But he was taking the shame the guilt and the sin of all of mankind on himself. And there is no way you can look at what Jesus did for us and say, that's not enough. Every so often someone says to me, I've sinned too much, Jesus can't forgive me. And it's like, let's study the cross. It's sufficient for anything you've done. There's no one to whom it is not sufficient for. So why was, he, why was he scourged? Well, Isaiah 53, 5 tells us something about it. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement, that's beating. The word chastisement here is beating. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. So Jesus not only was crucified in our place, taking sin, guilt, and shame, but he was scourged in our place. Because not only it, when, when you are guilty of something deserving of death do you die, which we are all guilty of something worthy of death, that's what the Bible says, but you also 
are punished. So Jesus takes the scourging, takes the punishment in our place. He died for me and he took my punishment. He took my guilt. He took my punishment. Now, some believe that when it says by his stripes, you are healed, that that's actually talking about eternity where there's no more sick. There's no more lame. There's no more sorrow. There's no more tears because Jesus, when we get to heaven, we're restored whole no matter what illness we have here because Jesus was scourged. M maybe. But Peter saw it as being something spiritual. Listen to what Peter says about Jesus being scourged. For this is 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. Who committed no sin, talking to Jesus, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Think about the threat Jesus could have made when he was suffering. He was like, you slap me? Watch it, buddy. You know, he, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to the judgment of righteousness. He said, I'm going to trust in God who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sin might live for righteousness. And then Peter says this, by whose stripes we are healed. He sees the scourging of Jesus as being something significant for each one of us. And then he is handed over to be crucified. The second station I want us to consider is Jesus being mocked by the soldiers. After they had scourged him, they brought him into the garrison. This is the place where the soldiers lived. This was where their, their bunks were. This is where they slept. This is where they ate. This is where they lived. Matthew 27, 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and they took the reed and they struck him in the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now, why does Jesus have to go through this? Why does he have to face the shame of these Roman soldiers mocking him? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame that was set before him. Sin is sin because it has something inherently wrong in it. God didn't go, I need 10 commandments. Let me see what I can think of and make up things that were, that were wrong. The 10 commandments are self-evident because in them it is wrong. It is inherently wrong to commit adultery. It is inherently wrong to steal. It is inherently wrong to bear false witness. It is inherently wrong to murder, right? So when you, when you murder, then you take someone's life, which is the worst thing you could do to someone, and you take the life of someone created in the image of God, which the Bible says is significant, and now you're guilty. Not only is, this, is sin sin, and you, when you commit it, you now become guilty of that sin. 
The Bible says Jesus took our sin and guilt. He took the guilt away from us as well. But not only are you guilty, but there is shame connected with what you've done. And we feel this shame in the form of guilt. When you do something you know is wrong, you feel guilty about it. The other day, I'm in a hurry. Someone's in front of me. I'm, I'm always in a hurry, okay? And I'm in a hurry. Someone's in a car in front of me and they're at a, you know the places where you don't turn right, you gotta go past the light and turn back around again? Well, this person got in the lane right in front of me and I'm in a hurry and I'm in the middle of it and now I'm waiting and so I honk my horn, but I don't go beep, beep, which would be nice. I'm like, and they're still tick, tick, tick. So then they notice it and they drive up to where they're supposed to turn around. Now I drive by and I'm like, <laughs> I feel, I feel so bad. I'm like, what? I wonder if that person is, that's Pastor Robert. <laughs> you know, I, that happens to us when we sin. We do something we know is wrong and we feel the shame of what we just did. I was ashamed that I'd done that. I, I've been ashamed many times in my life when I have sinned. When you stop feeling ashamed, that means your conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. When you can do something that is, you know, that is wrong and not feel that shame. So Jesus is taken by this garrison and he takes our shame. He not only takes our guilt, but he takes our shame. We'll return to this idea of shame in another one of the stations. Now, the third is that Jesus carries the cross. It says in John 19, 17 through 18, and he bearing his cross went out of the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, which in Latin is called Calvary. That's the hill he died on, which they crucified him and two others with him, one on one side and Jesus in the center. So it says, and bearing his own cross. Now we don't know whether he was carrying the entire cross or whether it was just the cross piece that they laid on him. Both would be extremely heavy. Both would be hard to carry. But let's put that aside for a moment and let's think of the irony of how the Romans did this. When they would condemn you to be crucified, you carried your own cross as the last thing you ever did. You carried the very thing you would be nailed to and you would die upon. You carried your torture instrument out there. Nobody carried it for you. You carried it. And this was so well known that Jesus said before he ever died on the cross, when the cross still represented a torture device, Jesus said to his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, then pick up your cross and follow me. This means as disciples, we are no longer living for ourselves. We're going to pick up our cross, whatever that is, and we're going to follow Christ. Paul put it this way in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And so Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Here Jesus is picking up his cross and leading the way for us. Now, was it uh, most scholars believe it was just the cross piece? And there, there is Roman historians that write about crucifixion and talk about people carrying the crossbeam. In Latin, the patellium. That's the, what the cross piece is, is mentioned. 
The cross would have been incredibly heavy, so people argue against it, but it's possible he was carrying the whole cross. We just don't know, but that's not what's important. What's important is, is that Jesus is going through this carrying his cross and that he will be crucified on. Now, the fourth station that we want to stop at and think about is Simon helps him carry the cross. At some point, for some reason, the Roman soldiers took the cross off of Jesus and gave it to Simon, who was just passing by. Maybe he saw the crowd and he was like, I'll go check this out. What's going on here? And next thing you know, a Roman soldier's grabbing him and putting a cross on him for him to carry. Listen to what it says in Luke 23, 26 through 31. Now, as they led him away, they, let, they laid hold of a certain Simon of Cyrene who was coming from the country and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now, why do they tell us Simon of Cyrene? Why did Mark and Luke feel that we needed to know who the guy was who led it? Remember, the book of Mark was written around 55. Jesus was raised from the dead around in the early 30s. So this is about 25 years after the event that these are being written down for us. They have, been, they have been kept orally up to this point. Stories have been told about Jesus, but now they're actually being written down. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are all gonna put it down for us. And as they do, they bring up Simon of Cyrene because it's a historical event that's written during the days that people are still alive when it happened. They knew the name of the man that carried the cross. It's interesting. Uh, Mark tells us even more about him. It says, then they compelled a certain man. This is Mark 15, 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now we learn as kids. Now, you would not say the father of Alexander and Rufus unless they knew who Alexander and Rufus were. Alexander and Rufus had become significant figures in the church. So when the gospels are being written, this is Simon, who's the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's possible, and many commentators write that they believed that Simon became a Christian. He was from Africa, so he's a foreigner, but he's Jewish. And Josephus tells us there's a large group of people in Cyrene, and his name is Simon, which is a, is a Jewish name. And so he's from Africa, but he's Jewish. And he has two kids, Alexander and Rufus. And Mark is written in Rome in 55. And Romans is written in 57. And in Romans 16, 13, he says, greet Rufus and his mother, who is my mother as well. Whatever that means, as Paul writes it, you know, there's debate over that because there's debate over everything, right? There's debate over it. But somehow, Alexander and Rufus are most likely at this point, they're Christians. Imagine having your dad, you're Christians, you're following Christ. And your dad was chosen to carry the cross. Maybe even Simon was a Christian. And maybe there's a picture here because when you look back at Luke again, at the very end there, it says, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So the cross is taken off of Jesus, put on Simon. Then Jesus walks towards Golgotha and Simon follows him with the cross. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. 
So you have an exact example of perhaps a man who became a disciple carrying the very cross of Christ behind him that Jesus would be crucified on. It's a powerful moment. Now, the fifth station that we want to look at is Jesus speaks to the women. Now, this is kind of, it looks mean when you read it. So as, as Jesus got condemned and, he, and he, now he's going to be scourged and he's going to be mocked by the soldiers, news of his condemnation to death is getting around Jerusalem. Somebody's running. They're thinking, Jesus has just been condemned to die. I got to go tell, you know, whoever. I got to go tell Martha. I got to go tell Mary. I got to go. So they begin to run around and tell women in Jerusalem, Jesus, the one who's been doing miracles, the one who's been teaching in the temple, Jesus has just been condemned to death. And so joining the crowds that were following him, the religious leaders who are going to mock him while he's on the cross, the crowds that have been antagonistic, crying out, crucify him, Joining those crowds is a group of women who love Jesus. Now, never, and this is really interesting, never in the entire New Testament do you have any women ever saying or doing anything against Jesus. You have a plenty of men, stinking men, but no women, which is interesting. It's just an interesting side note. I don't quite know what to make of it. But never do you have women being aggressive or saying anything bad. All you have is you have Martha, you have Mary, you have the woman who will cries at his feet. You have compassion of Jesus towards the women that are there. And so now these women follow him. And while Jesus responds seems mean until we dive into it. So listen to what happens. This is Luke 23, 27. And a great multitude of people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. So they're weeping as they're seeing Jesus probably being still whipped as he carries the cross or, or whipped as the cross is being carried for him. But Jesus turning said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say to you, blessed are the barren. In biblical times, it was considered to be a shame to be barren. Martha, excuse me, uh, Sarah was barren, Abraham's wife. And it was a, a big disgrace to her. And you see that throughout the Bible. To be barren was to be a disgrace. But now it says, blessed, there's going to come a time when they will say, blessed are those who are barren, whose wombs never bore, whose breasts never nurse." For they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will they do? What will, what will be done in the dry? All right, let's break this down. First thing he says is don't weep for me. I think he's saying this because he sees them weeping for him as if he is a victim when Jesus's purpose has been to march forward into this thing. He endured the cross, Hebrews says, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. He was not one at this point to be pitied because he was sacrificing himself for you and for me. He was sacrificing himself for these very women who were weeping for him at the moment. But within 40 years of this event, Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed by the Romans. When Jesus was entering into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey, and he was coming down the Mount of Olives and he saw the city of Jerusalem, which would have had the temple there. Beautiful view of the East Gate, 
the temple itself, and the Bible says Jesus began to weep. And he cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And now your house is left to you desolate because you did not know this day, the day of your visitation. He wept over the city. He wept for these women and their children because he knew that they were gonna be destroyed. Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, if you're in the field, leave. If you're on your roof, don't go back in your house, just leave. Do you know that when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies in 66 AD, the Christians left because Jesus had said that so that they were not there when the Romans destroyed the city. The city was sieged in 66 AD and read the accounts of what happened. The, the Jewish fighters began to hold their ground and even defeat the Roman soldiers. They were led by Titus, the son of Vespasian, the emperor. Titus would become an emperor. But when they first tried to take the city, they were repelled successfully by the Jewish soldiers. And they held the city for four years from 66 AD until 70 AD, when they finally broke through the walls. And when they broke through the walls, there was anger and they destroyed the city. Josephus tells us that there was nothing left standing inside the walls. They knocked every wall, every building over. They left nothing but hills. They murdered, they raped, they killed children. This is what Jesus was weeping over. Now, all of Jerusalem one day, Jerusalem will one day see him. Jesus said, or the Bible says in Zechariah 12, 10, Zechariah 12, 10, an amazing prophecy. And I will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem. And they will mourn for me as one who mourns for an only son. God speaking. So here they are mourning for him but one day they will mourn for him when he pours out grace and mercy that they didn't receive him as the Messiah. The Bible tells us that, G, that the, the Jewish people are gonna one day receive Jesus as their Messiah. Romans 11, 25 and 26, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then they will all be saved. Jesus was dying for them. Now, the next thing we talked about the, the barren part, and then he says, they will say the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us. This is a type of the tribulation period. And we see now because there was such devastation in Jerusalem, why they would say, we got to find a place to hide. But then he makes this statement. For if they do this thing in the green wood, what will they do in the dry? It's pretty easy to figure out. Have you ever built a fire with wood that's green still? And you just can't get it to burn? But you take dry wood and it's pretty easy to get on fire. Well, kind of. It takes a little bit to build a fire, right? If you do it, <laughs> depends on the wood. But anyway, I'm not gonna teach you how to build a fire. The, um, so what Jesus is saying is the green's still wood and they're doing this to me. Wait till you see what they do when it's dry, what they're gonna do this entire place. So two more. Jesus did not drink the sour wine. So when they brought him to the cross, they gave him wine, bitter wine, mixed with gall. Gall means bitter, or another gospel tells us it was myrrh. So they put, myrrh is, was used for perfume, 
and they put perfume into the wine. Now, you guys don't ever put perfume into anything you drink because it doesn't taste good. That's the idea. They were giving them an anesthetic, but it, but it tastes horrible. And they would drink it trying to get somewhat inebriated so that when they were crucified, they could at least have some form of anesthesia. So here's what happened. Matthew 27, 34. Then they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Now, we have more to say about this. We won't say today because he's offered it again later on on the cross. Remember, he says, I thirst. And he's offered this drink again. And we'll talk about it when we talk about the crucifixion. But why didn't he take the, the, the drink here? I believe because he needed to take the full force of what he was going to go through. I think he feared the cross. I'm not one of those that tries to put everything on Jesus like, no, he didn't fear being tortured. No, he feared it. No one wants nails driven through their flesh and into a tree. But he needed to take the full force of it because he was doing it for you and me. So we come to the last station. They stripped him of his garments and we're back to shame again here. Matthew 27, 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now they stripped him of his garments and they crucified him and he hung there stripped and shameful, being, being shamed. He endured the cross, despising the shame. So we're back to the shame aspect. But the fact that it quotes a prophet saying, my garments will be divided among them and my clothing, they will cast lots. Do you know who that prophet is? It's David in Psalm 22. And I'll encourage you, this is the end of the study. I'm gonna encourage you to get alone, maybe later today, and read Psalm 22. It's a first person account of crucifixion. And let me say that again in case it didn't strike you. It's a first person account of crucifixion. What is the first person account? The person being crucified is telling you what's going on. In that psalm, he says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. They surround me. They shoot at the lips to me. I thirst, he says there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the way the psalm opens up. The psalm ends with, it is finished or they have done this. It's Jesus. It's hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented because it's a thousand years before the time of Christ. And it's, it's, it's what's going through Jesus's mind on the cross. It is the most amazing prophecy of all. I'm re we're really thinking about this and we got to talk about whether we want to do this or not. We're really thinking about doing a Good Friday study this year where we actually go over Psalm 22 because it's so amazing, this Old Testament prophecy about what was taking place there. And he's confused in the beginning. Why won't you answer me? I cry out to you in the daytime. I cry out to you in the night. And remember, there was an hour of darkness while he was on the cross. And, and then he says, you've answered me. And notice that when you're reading it, you've answered me. And then it talks about Jewish people being saved. And then it talks about Gentiles being saved. And then it talks about a people that have not been born yet being saved. It, so Jesus, in his confusion, in his shock from what he's gone through, doesn't know what's going on. He went, I think he went into shock. And I think we read that there. But then he was answered and he realized, I'm saving the Jewish people. I'm saving the Gentiles. And I'm saving a people who have not yet even been born.
Now, quickly, I want to read all seven of these to you. We've taken our time to go through them, but I want to read these seven, what I'm calling the biblical way of the cross. Number one, Pilate condemns Jesus to die. Number two, the soldiers mock Jesus. Number three, Jesus carries the cross. Number four, Simon helps carry the cross. Number five, Jesus speaks to women. Number six, Jesus did not drink the sour wine. Number seven, he is stripped of his garments. These things are, they're not pleasant to spend time thinking on, but they are necessary because they reveal to us that he not only took our sin, but he took our guilt and he took our shame and he chose to do them all. Stand with me, would you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much as we take time to look over this section of Scripture, these few things that happened between the time that Jesus is condemned and the time they nail him on the cross. And we pray that these would be significant to us. And thank you that you've given us Psalms 22, where we get that first person account of the crucifixion of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would read it and be moved by it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.